Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we're recording episode two with John Duncan, which continues on from him going to East Timor, and there will be more episodes after this. So please, when this comes out, keep in mind there will be more of his incredible story to listen to later on. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber. 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. And thankfully, I've still got half a pink coffee left. That's good. (laughs) You know, one day I'll learn to pronounce your name without doing the soft flap. David. 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 Well, at least you uh, don't go Dave Olney. <laughs> Dave Olney. No, true. Uh, well, you know, someone we will give a nickname to. Uh, Jono, thank you very much, John Duncan, for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> You're back. You're welcome back anytime you'd like. Yeah, thanks, mate. The episodes have been really well received so far. We're always looking forward to these kinds of conversations. So, so last time we got up to East Timor, so maybe if we start today with what was it like getting back from East Timor after finally having got to put everything you'd prepared for into practice at some level um yeah so we we came back i think it was around april um so we had the rest of the year there and and when we did come back um because we were part of the malaria drug trial stuff we couldn't go straight on leave um so we had a couple of weeks um, where we actually had to come into the base every day um, and it was part of an eradication dosages every day and we're also monitored by um, us and Australian Merrill Institute uh, doctors and all that type of stuff. So you felt a lot like a lab rat. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, through the trip, we were we were doing all of that stuff as well, getting checked up on. Um, but I had the uh, the privilege of being in in what they called the the top one hundred club. <laughs> so, oh dear. So uh, we got this. Uh, I think it was a random letter, or so. I'm not sure if it was a random letter. I think it might have been a letter. Yeah, but we all got directed. We had to go down to the the RAP. You know, we had to give urine samples and blood samples and and other things. You know, physical checks and all that stuff. Um, and there were rumours going and going around that some guys had got uh, like sediment in their eyes, and there were some issues with um, creatinine levels. That's bad. Um, yeah. yeah. So, well, I actually had a kidney stone a couple of years afterwards, and I, uh, who knows? Yeah. I, I think you know things like larger creatinine levels, which I did have. I had a look at my. Uh, my uh, malarial institute medical files and it uh, you know the this at one particular point um they were off the charts i won't say what they are because it's all medical incompetence yeah. stuff you know yeah. it but it, um, was, it was not good and it makes the idea of a big kidney stone a bit later yeah yeah but the army kind of never took well they said no that's not related Right, anyway, we'll yeah. just take. We'll, we'll just there. giggle and move on. Yeah. Um, look, when I did come back, I look back um, at my experience of mental health and that type of thing, and um, you know, I did, I did kind of within my own mind, or from what I can understand, what I've experienced, I did have some issues. Um, it was mainly probably along the, um, you know, some depression side of the house, um, but like everything, you don't know what it is at the time. Yeah. So I just dealt with it. It was just standard running. You just get back into training, um, get back into the cycle again and just keep going. 
Um, and I think when you're younger, you can kind of just, if something like that pops up, you can just kind of deal with it. You just compartmentalise it and go, well, that compartment will get smaller over time, well, not realising that the compartment can grow into everything else. Well, what do we also get taught at work? It's uh, harden up. Yeah. Just mm. get back on it. Just keep doing it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, pain is weakness, leaving the body. Mm. You know, all that stuff, yeah. you know. All those one-liners, which I, as a platoon side, nice to throw out, you know. Lean into the hill. The hill will work, make, do the work for you. <laughs> or the ball's in your in your court. You know, that stuff, you know. Um, well, the ball rolls down the hill. You are going to climb up the hill. Yeah. What, what was it like? I think like everyone, because you do go into a foreign country, particularly third world, it's not just the incidents that occur when you're overseas, it's also being exposed to culture. Um, and East Timor is a very basic place. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the on the border there, they're all subsistence farmers. You know, they grow what they have to eat. So mm. there's no 7-Eleven down the road. There's no Woolies or Coles. It's if you don't grow enough corn. You go hungry. Or rice, you, you, you starve. Yeah. So, and that's when we were over there too, that was what, you know, the World Food Program were over there and, you know, supplementing their diets and, and other things. But again, when we go into those countries, um, we can't just give out free food. Mm. We can't give out all this stuff um, because it creates a false economy um, and it creates a false lifestyle. So when we leave, well, it just all goes to crap. Well, essentially what we're seeing in Afghanistan yeah. now. Mm. You know, yeah. you make a bubble called Kabul that is the modern world. Yeah. yeah but the bubble was being held up by Western money and personnel not internally, by Afghans. And, and if you historically look at every place that we have deployed, and not just Australia, but all of the, the larger conflicts over the last 30 to 40 years, all of those environments have been created. It's just Afghanistan's looks really cool in the news. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of activity going over there. Yeah. Uh, but the same stuff happened in Iraq. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the we just had a smaller part for a shorter period of time. Well, even yeah. looking all through Africa... You know, it still happened. It happens through there too. Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of just back to uh, let's do some exercises, you know, let's do some guard mounts, now, <laughs> you now, know, all to, of that stuff. To put this in context, like I've spoken to a few uh, British veterans who went to the Falklands and they said what was amazing watching after going to the Falklands is a whole generation who were near the end of their career. That was it. There was no reason to stay in the military any longer. And a whole pile of younger guys did the same thing. Right, I've now done the job, so it's fine to get out when the contract's up. So was there a, a mass exodus of older and younger talent? Well, see, East, East, Timor? East Timor wasn't over, all right? So yeah. there was still, um, like, 4RER had just um, had just taken over from us um, and 2RER was about to rotate back in. So you could hope yeah. to get another deployment so well, it was there were, worth sticking around. Well, guys did. So yeah. there, were, there were guys that stayed in the units and got multiple deployments to East Timor. There's there's guys out there that have got three or four deployments to East Timor. Wow. You know, okay, I never thought diggers. anyone did quite that much time there. Yeah. And then and then you've also got so you've got Inafet, you've got the UN time. Yeah. Um, and then you've got post UN as well. So East Timor went for quite a long time. Yeah. You know, we're talking ninety nine right through to oh I think we still had people back there in two thousand ten. Yeah, it basically yeah. ends up lining up with the Solomons, doesn't it? Yeah, and the yeah. Solomons was happening at the same time. time. Yeah, and that, and that's we'll go and get onto a, a bit in a, in a sec. But there was multiple deployments going on in the mid ninety or mid two thousands. Okay, and that was like you know there was Sec Debt, there was East Timor, mm. there was Solomon Islands. Um, 
you know, and they were the kind of big three and then Afghanistan mm. jumped in there as well. Mm. And you had all of these deployments all happening at the same time. Um, at one stage, 2006, they had a deployment into Timor again and uh, the boys were gobbling off and they called it one plus two equals three because <laughs> three hour took the guys into, into East Timor but they had a company from one, yeah. a company from three <laughs> and a company from two hour. So they called it one plus two equals three. three. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and but at the same time, because we this is where it kind of got really stupid, was all of these deployments would only send a company here and a company there and a yep, so whatever. You get no then, benefit as a unit as a whole from the experience to see if the system works. Yeah, and the, but then yeah. but then a big thing like East Timor flares up in two thousand and six, and they go, "Holy shit, we've got to send a battalion." Mm. And they go, "Well, there's no actual battalions." ready that have got their whole unit available to go mm. um but anyway <laughs> so we went through a bit of that stuff and i think that's the reason why army kind of changed its uh its cycle where you'd, you'd be in a readying phase and you'd be deployed and you come back and you're on post deployment stuff yeah um anyway so yeah look the rest of 2001 kind of occurred and um yeah it was kind of back in the normal cycle again you know, and I, and I think yes, morale probably wasn't the greatest. Um, we did have some guys discharge fairly quickly, um, but that kind of happened a few years later when Timor started to really, you know, slide off. Okay. And not, not many people kind of deploy. But the other thing that was also occurring was private security. So there was private security into um, Iraq. Yep. Um, so we even had some contractors. Oh, Afghanistan. Yes, yeah, recruiters come onto the base. Yep. They're going down in Afghans. Yeah. And they're, you know, doing applications up for dudes. And guys are going, oh, I'm going to go back to Timor again. Yeah. Or do I go to Iraq? Like I remember and it got so bad at one point that the South African military literally said, if everyone doesn't come back, we're sacking all of you. Because they'd all <laughs> taken leave of absence. Well, I know that, you know, from what I understand a lot of the a lot of our special forces guys did a lot of that work yeah you know and it did affect their ranks um yeah. but within our ranks we lost a lot of good guys yeah um and a lot of guys like you potentially in leadership roles well i did I the got, most valuable so in 2006 i actually did go for an interview with uh when i was still in with a with a company so they were doing um convoy and security protection mm-hmm. uh, into iraq and they had they went out to obviously go and do interviews and, and build a cohort of people ready to put onto a contract yep. um, as a new company that was starting up as Australian based. Um, but obviously this contract fell through, so we, none of us were offered any employment. But that's how those contracts would work. Mm. You're not a full, just come onto a company on a full time basis. It's mm. contract work. Mm. They put forward as part of their They're tender bid. process. So yep. Right, we've got 120 guys. Uh, if we bring them on, it'll take two weeks. This is how much it's going to cost. And then we'll get them over there and they'll do six weeks on, two weeks off. Mm. And this is how much it's going to cost. So, And these are the things that we can do. And all of the people that we've interviewed have the following skill sets. And mm. they, you know, I was you know, I was, a, I was a corporal at the time. So, I, you know, I wasn't looking at a logistical or, you know, operations level job, which they'd mm. already interviewed people for. But, you know, that was, that was the other stuff that was kind of kicking around. Um, and we had guys go off and do five years of contracting and then come back to defence. Because mm. uh, they'd gone and made the bag of money and then come back to a conventional day job because yeah. they could. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and those guys were making 
Oh God, I think you know five hundred bucks a day was starting. Yeah. If you were VI, you know, your high level VIP protection, you know, you could, sky's the limit. Well, I had an American friend, a ranger, who finished in Iraq in two thousand and three, you know, as a ranger, and went back in two thousand and four as a contractor, and that was a thousand dollars a day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, he did two years, and essentially that was. He and his wife out of debt, the house, their college debts, everything just gone. It was amazing. What, US yeah. dollars as well? Yeah, in so, US yeah. dollars. Um, yeah. But obviously there was risk. So, yeah. um, you know, depending on what company you went for, um, some of these companies were US government contracts. So they had full US government um, or military evacuation and medical support. So if you got injured over there, then they could... You got the golden hour in the way you would expect when you were still in uniform. Yeah, yep. yes. But then there's other companies didn't have that. So, and then they're not paying that much money either. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what do you do? And then, you know, I've got a mate of mine. We might talk about him later. Um, there's a lot of risk when it comes mm. to um, companies that are a bit dodgy um, and haven't got that evacuation stuff in place or medical support mm. um, and then you're working around say Afghan locals mm. so um, we can talk about him later but uh, I then got posted to uh, the newly fo- formed um, 3rd Brigade Reconnaissance Platoon and I got selected as part of as a number of other guys did as well so it was kind of newly formed um, up there it was they, they had the old uh, old defence platoon and it was a a, yeah, a Mark Kelly uh, initiative to, to get rid of that because it just wasn't really being utilised it was o- an old type of thing uh, i think the old defense platoon went back to the vietnam era mm. um so you know back in new dat days um so here we are charging forward we need to change the capability so we turned it into a brigade level reconnaissance platoon so that the brigade commander could have you know he could have his little asset so he could send out and go and gather information wouldn't have to rely on the battalions mm. to go and do it because you know obviously a battalion level reconnaissance is very snowed under with its own work mm. and then you've got the special forces guys who you know they haven't got enough time to do stuff for a, a uh, infantry brigade, mm. so we kind of filled the void between battalion and, and the special forces realm. Um, you know, uh, in that that element. So we had a, a guy called uh, Finlay. He's now the I believe he's the SOCON commander, um, Adam Finlay. Um, so he was the he was the brigade major. So so him and Mark Kelly put this uh, put this thing together and. We, uh, we formed it and then started writing all our, our stuff up. They, they posted in some really high-quality guys. Um, the platoon sergeant was a uh, is, is, uh, fairly senior sniper and um, the uh, couple of the guys had come in from the old 4 hour at that particular time. So they brought their, um, their SF experiences in with regards to reconnaissance. Um, and then at the same time, we, uh, they had a brigade jost. So the brigade jost was like another... Um, another 15 or 20 guys but they're mm. all from four field regiment and so if you're going to send in a reconnaissance platoon in deep you can't rely on you know organic fire support you need people to be able to call in fast air yep. because you know you're so so deep I mean, our projected force range was about a thousand k's yep um, so you need to take people who could call in you know, very complex stuff a yeah big skill set yeah yeah and and i mean if you look into afghan they they've uh and into iraq they've had to have those specialist teams to come in and coordinate all those particular fires. Mm. Um, so we had those guys. And then obviously if you're going to be projected forward, we need the signal support. So we had 103 SIGs up there, which we went in and trained a couple of guys up to work within our environment. Um, 
and then they would take their long-range communication stuff in with us. Um, the other thing that we did do was we qualified some of our guys with re- regards to long-range communication stuff. And one of the guys from, from X4, our blokes, um, we had with us was, um, you know, uh, SF SIG qualified. So he, you know, got a, got a guy's qualified to the, to, you know, if not formally or anything, but qualified enough so we could provide our own integral, you know, communication mm-hmm. support. Um, so really quite a remarkable group of skills in a small unit in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. And it was um, it was probably one of the best times I've had in the Army. I was going to say, this sounds yeah. like happy soldiering time. Like you've got all the little bits in a small unit where the machine is small enough to not have that much friction internally. So it's you lot sort of versus the world rather than versus each other. Yeah, it was – how can I say? The battalion can be like um, very – kind of overly structured with routine mm-hmm. um, and then that detracts from actually kind of doing the job and then being a little bit you know, inventive mm. um, where this was a new thing, was a new capability, um, came with a lot of responsibility. You know, just working in that realm with, you know, a digger's talking to a, you know, lieutenant colonel and a brigadier, mm. you know, about what's going on, you know what I mean? Um that's that's pretty cool stuff. Mm. Anyway, so we uh, you know ran all our courses up there, got everyone qualified. I was one of the only mortar basing an officer NCO, so I, I brought my um, my mortar skills into the realm and uh, and essentially got everyone up to quite a high level with calling in fires. Um, you know, right down to digger level. Mm. You know, they could call in a danger close mission to um, you know uh, mix multiple targets. Yep. Um, look at naval gunfire and, and providing enough information for aerial support. So, you know, I brought that kind of skill set to the game. Um, and then you had other guys that were, you know, all those other types of specialist roles um, that brought their expertise in. Um, but, yeah, we did some really awesome activities, um, built the capability up. Um, you know, we there we are doing um, a brigade-level reconnaissance activity for – a service-protected evacuation activity. So what we're doing in, in Afghan right now. Mm. So, so practising for that before anyone yeah. had thought we might do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, SAE or service-assisted uh, service, uh, or service-protected um, stuff was something that 3rd Brigade did a lot of uh, work with uh, and was mainly kind of orientated around what was happening in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything like that can be very much Where did they go in and do that? Was it Tonga or somewhere? Yeah, uh, so Tonga was one place. Because um, one of my students was there as it was happening and managed to send me an email going, hey, David, we're going to get rescued. Well, even even East Timor, you know, they, um, they went in and uh, conducted some evacuation stuff out of Jakarta with okay. Australian nationals and yep. all that type of thing. Uh, Solomon Islands yep. um, happened as well. They, they uh, The commandos went and did some stuff in there. Yep. Um, so it's something that the Australian Army's done a lot for a long, for a very long time. Um, but what, what did we do? Well, you know, we projected forward as um, as a reconnaissance screen and provided information prior to people going to the ground. So, you know, when you see all this stuff on TV right now, it's, I'd seen a plane land at Bagram Air Base and it's like you don't know who was on the ground at, the t- at that particular time prior to that doing all the planning. Mm. Um, you know, cargo aircraft don't fly into a zone like that without protection. Mm. So is anyone, anyone here in the, the planes up there, you know, loitering, you know what I mean? Or the <laughs> yeah. drone aircraft. Yeah. Um, you know, satellites are probably having to look down what's mm. going on, identifying mm. targets before th- things come in. Mm. And no one can see the actual perimeter which is being totally secured by a couple of american 
infantry battalions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of planning goes into that and there's lots of little things that you don't see. Um, but when we do a lot of PR on stuff like that, it's normally a, you know someone taking a photo at the back of an aircraft at the ramp down. Yeah, but again, that's wonderful in that you're showing it was done but not how. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's that compromise. There was so much more going on, which is the interesting bit. But we're not going to get told about the interesting bit. Well, we did uh, exercise uh, – uh, yeah, it was a very large army exercise down at Rockhampton and we fl- we literally put um, our whole platoon's patrols in there and did a reconnaissance screen prior to doing another service-protected activity there. But it was bigger than a company level. It was, you know, brigade-level mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so we were actually orientated up of three brigade, a lot of that stuff, and that's how our, our reconnaissance stuff kind of was based around. Um, and then we did another larger uh, exercise in 2003. It was um, exercise Crocodile, Croc 03. Um, and that was, uh, you know, amphibious um, brigade landing um, with all the stuff to obviously take take a piece of ground. And, you know, it was a notional island state and we were in mm. there doing something very similar to East Timor. Yeah, I was going to say, we yeah. now know what the current game is and let's yeah. get good at it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but we we sent in a full reconnaissance screen. It took us um, you know weeks, number of weeks prior to do all the all the proper planning for it, um, and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it was um, really cool stuff. Um, we had other patrols attached to the platoon. Uh, we had um, from three RAR, and there was a couple of reserve patrols from thirty one forty two. I think it is one of the armed reserve units up in Townsville. Um, and we did put in a full reconnaissance screen. And then obviously commandos did their stuff mm. down for beach landing and then SAS did their stuff in kind of a bit deep. Um, but it was all really cool stuff. I, I still remember just even getting on the aircraft and I think they were uh, – it was on a Blackhawk actually. Um, they were doing some studies, DSTO, into um, the new combat fitness test and how, many, how much weight someone would carry. Yeah. So I don't know why they came over to my patrol. It was like four blokes. And, uh, you know, we had a HF radio and a normal radio with all the secure gear. So I was carrying the HF as a patrol commander. My mate's carrying the other radio. And these weren't these little radios we put on our hips anymore. These are like No, these big, ones. chunky things. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So all the batteries, seven, yeah. uh, you know, eight, eight to ten days worth of rations, enough water for that particular time, you know, <laughs> 300 rounds, um, you know, all of the stuff. Um, you know, I'm carrying a you know, grenade launcher and all that type of stuff, the case dire. And I stood on the scales and, <laughs> and it uh, broke. <laughs> well, you know, at that, at that particular time I was I was weighing I was weighing about ninety five kilos. Um I could bench hundred and fifty and I could run Whoa. a two point four K run in about nine nine forty, right? Fittest I've ever been. Yeah. Right. But I was weighing and I, and my battle weight was about ninety five to hundred kilos mm. to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um so I stood on the scales. I stood off the scales, put my stuff back on, and stood on there. And this this lovely young lady, she probably would have been in her probably late twenties, with a little clipboard, you know, kneeling down <laughs> as I'm standing up, and I stand back onto the scales, and she's dropped a um, clipboard, and gone, what the, what the? <laughs> I won't say what she said, yeah. <laughs> and I've just looked at her and said, and she's gone, are you serious? And I've I've gone, how much is it? And I was weighing 187 kilos. Ooh, whoa. Me and my gear, right? Yeah. yeah. You were carrying your Basically own body weight. Your own yeah. body weight. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and she goes, that can't be right. And I'm going, what do you mean? So I'm just a patrol commander. Yeah. I said, 
the Stig's got to get us get on the scales next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah with more and, gear. Yeah, so she's like, she couldn't believe it. Yeah. And and I had to explain to her that like that your normal infantry guys they've got resupply for a couple of days, mm-hmm. so they they don't have to carry eight to nine. Yeah, your water and food load mm-hmm. alone. I mean, even when we were there, we had to, when we went out this this activity, we were in the field for about eight days before it got picked up. You can't carry enough water for eight days. Mm. No, you can't. So we had to resupply, and we had um, uh, water filters. It's like an MSR pump yep. thing, and um, we'd sit. I'd find a little area, and we'd put in protection, and we'd have a bit of a hose. We'd put it in, and guys would just. There's one of the dudes in this in, in the middle of us. There's just four, four of us. One dude would just you know kind of break security and be in the middle and just start pumping away, yeah, yep. and just start filling water bottles. Well, that thing broke down. <laughs> well, lucky we had our old Millbank filters, yep. so they're like a, it's like a Hessian sock, yeah, yep. and you just pour water through it. But we just hung it out of a tree, yeah, and just poured water in there and just took the muddy stuff out of it and put a couple of pluri tabs in, yeah. <laughs> but that's what you, that's what we had to do. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, I mean, to the civilian population, that probably sounds really cool and all that type of stuff. But to most infantry guys, it's just kind of. It's standard running, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's nothing special. Yeah, the reason you've got also, the old tech is the new tech is going to break. Yeah. When, when you do it that many times, I'm sure it loses its sheen. Like, Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the, even when we'd be in the jungle, it would be hard to get resupply. Yeah. So if it rained, you know, yeah. someone had hooch you up, you kind of angle it so that you'd refill ca- your water. You ca- yeah. Capture it with a yeah. cups canteen. Yeah. And then f- put it into a water bottle. Yep. And you just resupply. So you, as it rained, Use the stuff that's coming out of the sky. Yep. Yep. And away you go. So, um, so yeah. So, look, you know, that lady was a little bit shocked at how much all my stuff weighed. And, and then we got inserted by Hilo and then we had to climb a 600-meter above sea level mountain <laughs> and then get to the top of that. And then I got re- and then I got retasked and then I had to go down to the old Williamson airfield up at, uh, uh, where is it, Shellwater Bay. And that was another 15K away. <laughs> so bang, I've just I've just done it. Um, yeah, it was, it was out of control, but that that's just the stuff we did. Yeah. Um, and when you're moving those long distances, you're still having to do it stealthily yeah. because there's no other support out there. Yeah, you're by yourself, and if you get caught, yeah, or if you or if someone sees you, mm. you've now unmasked the whole brigades. Mm. Um, Where they're going to be next? Yep, yeah. they're looking. They've got people here, so they're looking there. Um, and if you do that. Jeez, oh, I think we were scared to death with um, if you get found or if you get seen, you're going to unmask the brigade commander's plan. Yep. Um, so it was almost we, – we did have the brigade commander come down. It was actually uh, – oh, what was his name again? He was Australian of the Year. He got it for um, that, like violence against women and – was it violence against women? Oh, David um, – not David Hurley, the other David. David Morrison. Morrison, that's yep. the one. So, um, yeah, even he – because he was a brigade commander at the time. Yep. You know, even he said, look, um, when I want to go in there, like if you can't see everything, don't go in there and get names off shirts. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because the, the risk to the plan is too big. Mm. And the um, pressure that would have been on here because you were a new cap- capability, like a lot of people you know, wouldn't have been in your corner because they don't want change. Yeah, well, there was there was a little bit of struggle at the time. I mean, Mark Kelly's was his initi- initiative, but then Morrison – it was like well, he came as a new brigade commander, so it was like, well, wasn't he really his toy? Yeah. So we kind of got treated a little bit differently, but but uh, that's just kind of the way things happen. But um, yeah, so we did Croc Zero Three. We actually did quite well. Um, 
I, uh, I, I think we, we walked about 120 k's in seven days. Carrying and, your own body weight. And three of those Fuck. days were stationary. So you, know, you can kind of picture that, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it got to the point where, because we're carrying so much weight, I'd look around at my patrol because there's three other dudes around me, me, me the fourth dude. And I'm looking around and, and guys after an hour – at about the at, at the fifty five minute mark, you can see their heads kind of going oh, down yeah. a bit because yeah. they're so tired. And yeah. and I just go right out, stop. Yeah. So we'd stop. Yeah. We'd have a five ten minute break. Yeah. And I go right out. Let's pick up. Let's move again. Yeah. Because if you sit there too long, too, you just, you would you never just, get up again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I had to be very, con- um, you know, cognizant of that mm. um, to kind of if people's awareness is going to drop, that's going to make us more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so just that kind of management stuff. Which, um, again, is another incredible skill you pick up along the way that you've got no formal qual for. Yeah. You know, your ability to read a group of people and go, when can't they do this safely and effectively? Yeah. You know, th- that's why they made you a corporal because you were getting good at reading that stuff and you had to keep getting better and better. Well, also, when you've got, you got a small team like that too, you kind of get to know each other a lot mm. more, a lot mm. better than you do in a, in a platoon environment. Like, you know, a large platoon of 30 mm. people all the time. And when you've got guys that got a high skill set and you work around them and you respect them very highly, you know, you know when someone's hurting mm. and when someone needs to have a rest yep. or, mm. you know, you just need to, need to look after them that little bit better. And then once you do that, they'll just give you a shirt off their back anyway. Mm. Yeah, so anyway, that was a that was a pretty pretty cool exercise. I think the, the highlight I took out of that was um, I ended up pushing down uh, to a particular crossing point and put in OP for a couple of days and... I ended up having a squadron of uh, of lavs from two cav put in a a squadron harbour, and I was on one corner of their harbour, <laughs> and they didn't see me there. Um, so I uh, you were very proud of yourself at that point. Oh yeah, I we were actually we were shitting ourselves because I was in the OP, and these guys they put this harbour up, and we were on the part of the perimeter, and they didn't see us, <laughs> and I've. And uh, we'd just done a picket change, so our LU, so our lying up admin area was like fifteen to twenty meters behind where our observation point was. And the the guy that I was on observation picket with didn't come back, so I've got on my guts because it was you know, the grass was about half a meter tall, big long spear like you know that speary mm. kind of grass. Mm, yeah. So I've crawled away back, and there's my patrol sig on the radio and there's the other two's lying and they're, they're facing towards a, a lav which is about 70 metres in front of us. <laughs> mm. And uh, he's already on the blower back to our, um, our patrol head, well, our platoon headquarters which was then relaying back to brigade. And uh, they're just looking at me going, Dunks, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I've gone, because we couldn't stand up. Yeah. Mm. That's how close they were. So um, I, I ended up asking, Asking for uh, let's call in fire. <laughs> so I I rang up the I rang up brigade and asked them for one hundred five howitzers. I think we had one hundred fives back then still, right? And because the brigade had landed and they weren't too far, they'd, they'd actually taken um, Williamson Airfield and I was down another fifteen k's or something like that, or well, within within mm. range anyway, and um, of their uh, artillery. And I said, well, you know, can I, I, I send in a call for fire? <laughs> And then I think on the other end, they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so we waited 20 minutes and I'm ringing oh, wow. up going, I want this fire now. now before yeah. we, and it's like, wait, we're wait, we're just trying to get approval, wait. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, it came back and uh, old Morrison at the time said, 
he passed it. Obviously, I didn't speak to him directly on the phone, but he passed it down through his chain and said, I'm not unmasking our 105 guns for your little patrol down there. But I've got a squadron of enemy right there. Yeah. yeah. You know, the two cab guys are obviously enemy. Um, but he said, look, you've got naval gun support. And I'm like, because I'm ex-mortars, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, more to fire controller qualified, so I can you know, qualify to call in stuff. I thought the minimum safe distance is eleven hundred meters, <laughs> and, and I can only see I can only see about one hundred and fifty. So yeah. I'm like, there's no way. It's no. like, you know, it's like when you try and get someone to do something, yeah. or you or you or you say to a farmer, look, I'd really like that goat you've got out the back. Can I? Can I? You know, could you slaughter it and buy it? And the, the farmer wants to keep it. And they say, if you've got $25,000, I'll give it to you. Yeah. You know, it was like that. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm just going, really? Um, so we actually, we all the four of, four of us crawled out into this creek line and then went down this, this uh, it was almost like a river system. We, we, and we went down a couple hundred meters on our guts, left our packs there because our packs were so yeah, you heavy. You couldn't have yeah. moved anything, no. not being able to no, stand. We, so we yeah. took the radio out and we had like little bags in our top of our packs. We just pulled out and I just left the, packs there because there's no way we could stand up so i just left it all there and crawled out anyway we went down this creek line far enough we could stand up we patrolled down another 50 and then went up the the, the uh, embankment because we were in a bit of covered area and mind you the two cav guys had thermal um capability on their vehicles mm. so any type of heat they could see us yeah. you know, yeah. even if we're lying in grass but because i had an understanding of that capability um, thermal can only see through a certain amount of foliage. Yep. So I'd moved down and far enough that, you know, we're in at least 50 metres deep of foliage. They, can't, they won't be able to see us. Yep. Okay. Um, yep. So I moved up into this creek line and we stopped and I'd actually like patrolled and there was one dude facing backwards, actually two dudes facing backwards into the creek line and me and the scout pushed up onto a bit of flat and I've literally stepped on a twig and went snap and the boys are gone, Stop. And I've, I've just kind of freezed and I looked over my shoulder and there was two, there was a couple of two cav guys who were playing enemy. They were in desert cam uniforms and they they had uh, towels over their shoulders, no webbing, their rifles. And there's like a bit of a billabong down there. So oh, I go for a swim. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> we we're kind of like, everyone just freeze like, um, you know, statues and the guys, they didn't even look, man. They just walked, they're probably about 50 metres from us. Yep. You know? But they were going to the billabong to have a swim. Yeah. yeah they they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they weren't really concerned about us. Um, but I think till this day, they still didn't know we were there. Yeah. Anyway, I pushed up into this big scrub, scrubby bush thing and we stayed there. And then that night when it got a bit dark and there were shadows coming through the trees, we sent two guys forward to grab our packs. And we grabbed all our packs. But, um, yeah, that was funny. And then um, I think we, we, we've trolled off for the next couple of days after that and, Got extracted. Um, it was a bit of a shit fight getting extracted. Um, but when we came back through and we got extracted, the uh, that whole area had white tape around it. So obviously, after we'd got out of the the, the kind of danger zone on the ground, um, where artillery had fallen, they must have called fire. By that point, they were willing to use the artillery yeah. and they had the coordinates. Yeah. 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 So that was that satisfying. Was yeah, we went back and. Uh, we did a whole big debrief for the platoon and uh, they were very impressed with us. The brigade commander at that time um, turned around and said, look, 75% of his decisions were made because of us. Mm. Um, so it was, you know, for a couple of young diggers and some people that formed a, a new capability, it was it was exciting stuff, man. Mm. You know, I, I think out of my whole career, that's 
that was some of the best stuff I've ever did. They gave you the maximum number of skills and the maximum amount of autonomy mm. yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. yeah, and we did some really hard stuff. I mean, you know, the, even the PT we were doing up there was out of control, you know. Um, I was so fit. Um, but towards the end, you know, because we were keeping that high level of fitness standard, I was starting to, you know, get some get some injuries. Yeah, like at what yeah. point does your back start to compress? Well, your lower spine start going, hi, John. I, I actually had some groin issues. My back was, wasn't too bad. Okay. Um, I was, you know, just all those ligaments right in your groin. Yeah. From um, the weight constantly of you trying to move your hips and your legs. All tied to your yeah. uh, abs and stuff. Iliozoas yeah. or something. You would know this, David. I remember the names vaguely, but I'm not going to try <laughs> and do this in an episode. <laughs> yeah, so after that, um, I uh, so I did a couple of years there. I loved it. Um, and then I got posted to uh, to Adelaide. So I got uh, I had an option of you know, different postings I wanted to kind of do and what I wanted to put forward. And I thought, look, now's time to kind of um, go back to Adelaide and kind of reform or reform some, you know, kind of lost relationships with my family, you know, my mum and dad and my brother and all that type of stuff. I'd been away from Adelaide for, you know, 12, 14 years by then. Almost as long as you'd been alive before you went in. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I thought I'd, I'd go down there. So I got posted to... Um, um, one of the reserve units down here. I did some stuff in a in a training cell environment, um, and that's where I, I actually started. You know, some injuries were starting to come through because I was doing a bit more time at a desk, which was very unusual. Um, I started to get a lot of hamstring problems, and yeah. you know, back issues are starting to come out and all type of thing. Um, but that was interesting. Um, you know, full on kind of tempo that I was doing. We, we, I was wasn't online. Um, wasn't having to worry about my phone ringing and having to go anywhere. But then meeting a different cohort of people and, you know, doing a lot of training. So we were running a lot of IT training and stuff like that, so employment training for infantry, yep. reservists. Um, and uh, and I, I, I essentially led up the uh, the training cell there um, and did a lot of work for that. So the guys, well, I got rewarded for, for that. I got uh, written up for a, uh, one of those, I think a soldier medallion, something, something like that. Um, so someone uh, wrote me up for something like that, and just did a lot of lot of good work down there. So high level administration, mm. high level training provision, yeah. And again, n- no overt qual that you can carry forward. Highly valued at the time at some <coughs> level, but you can't explain to anyone on the outside. I've got these skills. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, even as even back then when I was doing that stuff, you know, a lot of it was kind of project management stuff. Yeah, you know, um, and a fair amount of risk assessment built in. Yeah, and, and also high-level training um, type stuff too, you know, having to use training management packages and, you know, make sure the training's all correct um, yeah. in accordance with the continuum and all that type of stuff. You know, making sure that people are getting trained at that same standard. We're pumping out, you know, almost like a sausage factory. Yep. Um, even though it was at the reserve level. And meeting um, all the legal requirements. So yeah. you simultaneously have to do it consistently well and consistently within the realms of doing it properly, yeah, you know, legally and morally, yeah, yeah. So I did that for a couple of years, and look, it was good to kind of come back to Adelaide and not be in that high, uh, high in tempo like environment. It was good to have a break, and then, then after that, I got posted to three area, and I was there for um, almost a year. Uh, we got deployed to the Solomon Islands um, at short notice. Um, there was at that particular time, two thousand six. There was a um, so there's some federal coppers, and I believe there was a small army um, element there. Um, and 
there was some issues with the Chinese. So the Chinese were affecting their economy and, you know, poor wages towards mm. the locals and all the rest of it. And they were, you know. We should have noticed at that point that the Chinese model was in full flight yep. and was a good predictor of what was going to happen next. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was quite disgraceful to be honest. But look, um, we it went it went to crap pretty quick. There was some big riots. Um, there was a federal policeman killed. That's that then turned a chain of events, and that was we need to send in some Australians to you know, a force to stabilize mm. um so we picked up within tw- 48 hours packed all our stuff on a plane and we we're over there so we met uh one rer and they had two companies there with their headquarters um and then we rolled in um to support so that kind of formed the one plus three <laughs> equals mm. <laughs> um yeah so we stayed there for um about five weeks um until everything well, everything kind of stabilized quite quickly. Um, initially, when they were the, we rocked up, um, the Fed coppers had been had had copped a hiding. There was like 120 vehicles with all smashed windows on the um, at the back of the uh, resort area, which they were using as a um, a base. Um, and there was martial law that was kind of called, so they had curfews and. So did um, it feel very stuff. similar to East Timor, or was yeah. it, or was it something different because it's a different culture, different place? Um, look, it's, it felt it felt similar, uh, but not the same. Okay. Uh, the Islanders are, a, um, they're they're a bit stronger personalities than say the East Timorese, so they were you know again a different type of person to. Yeah, you had to, to get with. the culture under control all over yeah. again. Yeah, this is a place where there's a bit more. Well, they hadn't been brutalised by the Indonesians for the last 20 years. Makes a difference. Well, the, the Solomon Islands people are kind of, they respect someone with a gun in their hands yeah. and someone who's bigger than them. You know what <laughs> so I mean? you at 95 yeah. kilos fighting fit and yeah. with your style, that's that makes sense. Yeah, and with a heap of du- other dudes behind me as well. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, that was interesting. Um, and I think because of that, everything kind of calmed down really quickly. So um, that thing of being at a, a, of load and go in 48 hours... Yep. made a lot of sense in that culture. Yep. Hey, we got revved up and they turned up with big dudes with guns. Yeah, and that's only yep. that, that's only a minuscule uh, amount of people compared to what they've got back at home. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, look, they, you know, they had to politically go do all of their stuff. We we were initially down at the airfield um, just providing protection when, when they brought aircraft in to essentially conduct another evacuation of... Mm. Uh, Chinese, so they actually had paid charter flights rock up, and Chinese get on planes and fly back to China, mm. you know, or to other countries. Mm. Um, so again, that was kind of back in the realm of service protected evacuation. But interestingly, yeah. doing it for someone yep. that wasn't us and wasn't a close ally. Yeah, and we were going because it was the Solomons, and we cared. Yeah, yep. once again, didn't learn the lesson. No, no, that's it. Um, but yeah, look, it was interesting. We did a lot of vehicle patrolling, a lot of foot patrolling. Um, just to, you know, show a presence stuff just to kind of stabilise everything. Um, in the initial stages, we, um, you know, my platoon looked after security and, and the company did as well of the airfield. Um, and then we had a uh, a bridge that went into Honiara with a river system that we essentially shut down at night. Um, so I, I went down there regularly and I, uh, doing a, a night activity to provide support to the fed coppers and the fed yep. coppers set up like a roadblock a roadblock that would be able to open for certain vehicles in Nanahorni at Honiara yep. 
we were down there one night and uh, I had my section off to the side and the guys are just absolutely tired. We haven't slept properly in ages. Um, but the Fed coppers are doing their biz and I said, look, I want to rest my guys off to the side. And they're like, yeah, no worries. Um, if you have any issues, just come and give us a call or come down, knock me on the shoulder and we'll give you a bit of support. Um, it was more, we were more there for, say, for a heap of locals, rock up. Yeah. The, they get the, angry because they can't cross. The AFP should be able to get on with most of the night unless yeah. they need the big group of guys to stand behind them. Yeah, because yeah. again, the, you know, the Solomon Islanders respect people that are big and they've got a gun. So mm. that's that's how we kind of diffuse a lot of situations. Mm. Um, and I, we did have a, I did have a couple of situations over there. There was one... Um, uh, we went to a, like a domestic violence type thing where the cops asked us to come down to provide a bit of support and I rocked up to this hut and it was like a two-storey hut <laughs> and there was like um, it was like in a big cornfield so like subsistence farmer type right. stuff mm. and the two cops rocked up they were you know Tor- uh, Solomon Islanders and I had my two vehicles they were just like Land cruisers, hmm. and uh, so my boy, my boys just stayed in the Land Cruisers, and the two local cops said, "Hey man, just stay in the car. We're just going to go inside." So I literally looked around, and there was people running around everywhere. There was a dude who went up to their little balcony, jumped off the balcony onto the ground, and then there was another, you know, big, big uh, Solomon Islander with a machete. Oh god! <laughs> Come back! He's, he's jumped off the thing onto the ground and run off into the into the bushes. I'm going, what is going on here? And I could hear screaming and carrying on and people getting thrown through wind through walls through walls because the walls are like thatched stuff, right? And I, I said to all the boys to save me radio, just stay in the car. I'm just going to get out and stretch my legs. So I opened the door hmm. and I stood outside the car and everything stopped. You moved. Did it change the tactical? Yeah. Everything situation. stopped. Yeah. And the coppers, you could see them trying to hold people back, and and then bang. As soon as I stepped out of the car, yeah, everything stopped. And then one of the islanders, as part of this big disturbance, came up to me and said, "Oh, Mister, Mister, like we don't want any trouble." I said, "No, mate. Look, I've just got out of the car to stretch my legs, mate." Yeah. 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 <laughs> now at this point, but, are you starting to feel some of the injuries from earlier stuff? What do you mean? Well, you were saying before you'd started to have problems with your hamstrings and you start to feel your lower back. By the time you went to the Solomons and this was five weeks of this level of intensity, was your body starting to say, hey, John, you've pushed me a bit hard carrying your own body weight for weeks at a time? It, it wasn't too bad. We were, uh, um, I think my, my fitness level had kind of got back up again. Okay. And and the other thing is we were doing a lot of vehicle ops as well. Okay, so it was taking a fair amount of pressure off. Yeah. You could be using your brain and being a good leader without wrecking your body much more. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it was like it's, it's an extremely hot place. You know, it's – you ever been to Darwin in the yeah. wet? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know. In the wet, huh? <laughs> yeah, so it's always wet, always steamy. Just like the shower, you know, only without a curtain. You, you can't go to an air-conditioned office because – you know, just chill out for at least 10 minutes. You're yeah. in it the whole time. Yeah. So that can take a while to adjust to, mm. um, you know, particularly coming from Sydney. That's gross. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. And it was cold in Sydney at the time Yeah, you know, yeah. when we deployed. So that having appreciation for that um, is also another level. It takes you a while. I mean, obviously, the fitter you are, the quicker you acclimatise. Mm. But um, I don't care who you are. It's still, it's, it still takes months mm. to... Uh, Oh, to yeah. acclimatise. Um, but anyway, we, we were down on this uh, bridge crossing um, with the Fed cops for a couple of nights and I got a call over the radio and um, it was uh, the PR officer 
for one RER, I think. He said, oh, yeah, look, just letting you know, we've got some people from 60 Minutes coming down. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, God's sake, Great. I'm going to get on the TV and I'm going to owe someone a carton. That's the first <laughs> thing went through my mind. Um, so anyway, they came down and uh, we'd, we'd been quoting. I'll, I'll get into this bit um, in a sec. But anyway, 60 Minutes rocked up. One of the, my boys went over straight out of the car when the door opened and said, hey, Richo, how's it going? No, Richard Carlton. Mm-hmm. And this old bloke goes, oh, look, I'm not uh, Richard Carlton. I'm Peter Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> He's the really old guy. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter Harvey rocked up. Um, <laughs> anyway, so he rocked over to us and this PR officer said, oh, look, can you guys come in here? And he had his like stage manager or something like that or whatever say, say look, can you guys just you know talk amongst yourselves and whatever, we'll just film it. You know what I mean? like, so oh. we've been we've been quoting Anchorman for the whole trip. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was on? about that period. Am I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> so so we yeah. anyway, um you know, it's, it's the pleats. Anyway, so um, anyway, so we're quoting all this stuff as they're rolling and the stage manager just goes, Stop everybody <laughs> and he's like Who's in charge here? I said, oh, it's me. He goes, this has got to stop. <laughs> you know, I'm going, oh, hey, mate, well, what do you want us to do? Yeah, you asked us to talk about <laughs> Yeah, he goes, yeah, we, we, we you, like, give a brief or something? So I, I gave this brief oh. and, you know, I was just talking about a quick scenario. And, yeah. and again, it's like it's putting you on the spot because anything I say yeah. is going to, oh, know, yeah. the media is going to grab it. Yeah. And make it look like oh John's at war yeah, in this yeah. country, you know? yeah. or, or you know I'll say something totally inappropriate, and next year I'm having to explain myself. You're getting done. So. They're saying you were compromised opsec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all that stuff. They yeah. set you up to do it almost because well, it's like they, yeah. it's like well they're sort of innocently just being like oh I'll just talk amongst you. like you know yeah. just 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 act natural. <laughs> we were. Only, Am yeah. I on? Am I on? I don't believe you. <laughs> anyway, um, I started giving this brief. And towards the end, I said, make sure that you've got your gear ready next to you so you can move at a moment's notice. Mm. That's what they filmed. Yeah. That's what they put in there. Mm. The good war shot. And they took photos of like, you know, there's a minimai and, you know, dudes cammed up and me kind of in there like, you know, my my head kind of, you know, with these knife hands, right, I've got to do this, (laughs) you know, and it looked like... You know, we're ready to go. Yeah. It's notice to destroy the whole country. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't cop any flat. Um, oh, that's good. But um, And Peter Harvey was happy. So that's all well, that really matters. He so, got paid. That's well, there was even one of my mates um, from when I was at Brigade, Raycon. He, he saw it like when it was on 60 Minutes. Mm. He's like, JD, JD, represent. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there was, there was all the uh, usual messages like, you know, carton, carton. Carton. <laughs> so, uh, but I never paid any of those up, you know, because I said, what do you want, a carton of water? Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? You did, you did not designate what carton. Yeah. You could have Mount Franklin. You know, yeah. a carton of pens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, look, um, we had some, we had a couple of, uh, you know, unique instances occur <clears throat> uh, when I was there. Um so domestic violence is stuff to um, having to patrol around certain places and give support and, you know, service-protected or service-assisted activities, mm-hmm. um, evacuation um, stuff um, and all the rest of it. So 
yeah, it was it was a funny funny trip. I, I did have a I did have a, a young girl point a pistol at us. It oh, looked wow. like a pistol, yeah. So we had to sort that out. And when I did sort it out, we found out it was a plastic pistol. Oh, so, so it could have very easily ended very badly. Yeah. So that um, those types of instances really kind of you have to react to that mm. appropriately at exactly the right time, mm. or it can turn into something very bad. Mm. And um, I look I look back at that particular incident. And we we did tackle it appropriately, but it just highlights when you go on those operations. Not all of it's high end war fighting, but if someone points something at you and shoot them in the face. Yeah, there's consequences. Um, oh, most definitely. You know, and I was yeah. I was in three hour at the time when um, old Kovko, had, you know, he'd accidentally shot himself in Iraq. Yeah, and if I'd gone and shot this twelve year old kid at point a pistol at me, mm. it would have politically just turned into an absolute shit for, shit storm. Mm. And you probably would have known about me well before this podcast. Yeah. So, but that just highlights on those jobs. <sighs> the low level conflicts are some, are some of the ones where you you get those things that happen the greatest level of ambiguity yeah yeah and it's sometimes very hard to deal with or hard to find the correct solution so who was the first person who saw a one of my blokes uh, um, so what happens he sees it what happens next so we we're, we're in two vehicles um we'd stopped in a tennis section and i was actually looking down at my map i was in the rear vehicle and i hear gun left and i looked out of the window and there was a vehicle like a a, a hilux ute of shitty old banged up Mm. Like you, with about 15 people in the back mm. and this person standing up pointing a pistol um, will look like a pistol at me mm. from about 15 metres mm. and um, I just said stop and uh, I didn't get anyone to back me up it actually pissed me off so so much that I just opened the door said everyone stay in the car and I grabbed my, grab my rifle and I put it up you know obviously in the low ready so yep. ready to to pull it up and I think it's shit it, it absolutely sh- like these people shitting themselves yeah because mm. instead of it being fun and game suddenly you've got out of the vehicle mm. yeah and look you know, I stopped the, and I, look I think it was it was just a bit of stupidity yeah. to be honest but stupidity um, can be lethal that's what pissed me off mm. yeah because it, it seemed like a bit of an innocent thing but I didn't know but it's also it's a culture with so much violence in yeah. it that again it is the kind of stupid thing that will happen yeah. Because of the level of violence. Yep. Yeah. So the vehicles, actually, they I didn't even tell them to stop. Mm. They just stopped and everyone jumped out. They all cowed around the front of the vehicle. Yeah. And I walked up there by myself. By myself and uh, someone jumped. I said, where is it? And someone threw it in the uh, in the back of the tray. And by that time, one of my blokes had walked up behind me, ready to help support. And I picked this thing up and it was a plastic pistol. Yeah. Mm. But it was full scale. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the best way to describe it was like, you know, one of those uh, gel blaster pistols. Yeah, yes. it was a good. It, again, yeah. it could have been a great movie prop in that it looks essentially right. Yeah, yeah. From fifteen meters, look real. Yeah. yeah. But you know what happened in the training side of it? Well, young twelve-year-old girl in the back of a vehicle, kind of a little a smile on her face. Mm. Yeah. Looking like she's doing something a little bit stupid. Mm. Yeah. So, for me, that was an assessment on the ground not to shoot someone in the face. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. But it pissed me off. Yeah, yeah, because if you hadn't been you and you hadn't done the calculation, she's got a goofy face. Like she's smiling in a weird way. All right, let's go sort this out because I'm angry now. 
rather than going, you have to react instantly. Yeah, but I've, I've looked, we've identified a gun, I've looked over yeah. it and then looked at her face. Yeah, and gone, So that, that face doesn't match. So, you know, within your rules of engagement, if someone points, points something at you, you can shoot them. Mm-hmm. But I looked a little bit past that and that's where the training kind of comes into play because mm-hmm. you're not really scared about the pistol. No. Well, you... At 15 metres, unless someone's trained, you've got a fair chance. Yeah, but, you know, big JD... Yeah, fairly a, big target. With a body armour on and a helmet mm. and a gun mm. in that country, everybody stops. Mm. So, you know, that was kind of just me just getting out of the car with my rifle up was mm. was always, was the first part of the rules of engagement. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but uh, it could have turned into a shitstorm. Mm. How did you guys deal with that over the next sort of day or two? Like that would have been the perfect example for them of looking beyond the training, that extra step that you'd done? I, get, I, actually, reflect, I, I actually reflected on myself that uh, I went into a bit of a mode mm. and I was actually quite shocked that I was going to – I it actually went through my mind that if someone does anything any further, I was going to blow a few heap of people away. Mm. Mm. Fuck. The, the operant mm. conditioning has worked very well <laughs> yeah. because I'm ready to act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, in East Timor, we saw you know a lot of that different types of stuff happen regularly as well. So mm. it wasn't kind of foreign to me. I think that's why maybe I wasn't too worried about someone pointing a pistol mm. at me. Mm. Um, but uh, that, that was just kind of an example of that. Everyone just thinks it was just some little shitty trip, but even something like that could have turned into a massive political shitstorm. If yeah. I if I'd killed a twelve year old girl in that country at that mm. particular time with all the stuff that was going on around everything, including the Chinese mm. having to get on planes and go back to their own country. Yeah. yeah. I mean it could have underpinned mm. why we were even there supporting. Well, you know what I mean? Listeners, let's put this in context. Jim Mattis has come out and said that East Timor was, you know, an important mission to, you know, learn about doing all sorts of things. But the Solomon Islands is the textbook small modern mission. So when you've got someone like Jim Mattis coming out and saying that the small op should be studied much more and there's all sorts of great lessons to be learned out of it, it's an indication that you know, it's not just John from his perspective on the ground going, this you know, could have turned out bad but thankfully turned out well. We've got one of the most important generals of a generation saying this is a critically important mission to understand. Mm. Yeah, so that was – I think um, – uh, I think the reason why I've probably talked about that particular incident is because I've actually thought about it quite a bit over the last couple of years um, because I I don't know, I've just kind of some, for some particular reason, maybe back to the moral injury side of it, you know, maybe I've reflected on what I did and, you know, did I do the right thing and, mm. and all the rest of it, and I think I did. Mm. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that it was another dose of moral injury. Yeah. Because when you reflect, you go, because of this dumb 12-year-old and because of my operant conditioning... This very nearly could have been physically catastrophic. Mm. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact it's already been emotionally and morally corrosive. Yeah. 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 And that's such an important thing to understand. It's not how it ends. It's the process you go through that can be part of Mm. the damage. Well, even, you know, things like we had a young Solomon Islander guy probably, you know, in his early 20s and he's got his old uncle you know, and his uncle's off his face on Carver mm. and he's belted the absolute piss holes through his nephew. You know, he's dragged us up to him, dragged him up to the particular century point we're on and said, you need to throw him in jail. You know, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, lots of lots of different situations, yeah. lots of different things. If if anything, some of it a bit policing style of the house. Yeah, yeah and that's the, sort of the key thing because out of the Solomons, the AFP had to move to really change how they deployed. And I think out of this came, uh, was it International Deployment Group, IDG? Yeah. So they changed how they do so many things because in so many cases they just weren't ready to be there and deal with it. Well, even even with just something like I'm supporting a vehicle checkpoint and I'm getting asked by this woman who's an AFP woman and she's saying, oh, John, like, can you give us a hand with like setting up this vehicle checkpoint? Like, We haven't done this for like, since my training. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I sat, I, I helped him out. I was going to sit there and be all arrogant. I helped him mm. out. Yeah. Um, but I was very surprised, and I thought, <laughs> I actually gobbed off to him and said, "Well, don't you guys send up breath, you know, breathos and stuff, man? Like, not yeah, since you know, the first two years of their out. career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is the thing. Like again, listeners, one of the interesting things about this period in the Solomons is how many AFP personnel came home uh, on stress leave. Yeah. Because based on their training and their experience, yes, they'd nominally had the training once to be able to deploy and do the job but they hadn't had proper scenario training and in the main they hadn't had the deployments you know like army had had yeah and so, look to be effective on a job like that you do need to do a lot of scenario based training yeah um, because you could have um, quite a lengthy time of boredom um, and not much activity and then suddenly things are happening yeah you know in succession yeah. Um, yeah. and you've got to switch on some board diggers to actually instantly react to something and do things appropriately, yeah. Because if they don't, we'll be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Because um, those other jo- those jobs too are very very politically sensitive. Yeah. You know, if you do one thing wrong, instantly yep. whoever's on the coal face is going to get sacked. Yeah. But yeah, so um, look, we came back from that. I'd actually had a gut full of the army by then, and I got out. Um, so I got out uh, later that year, two thousand six. I went and worked for a mate of mine, you know, painting and blasting company. So at um, the time, if someone had said, why are you getting out, how would you have explained it at the time? What were you sick of by then? I was just sick and tired of the the uh, the toxic environment, um, the political crap, the rigmarole, um, the routine. It was just all the same. So really, you know, after having done the recon stuff, the two deployments, again, it's too much, too much of same old, same old. Yeah, and also, you know, part of it was I'd, I'd moved into a new unit and I wasn't known there. Mm. And, um, you know, all of that experience stuff that I'd had doing other stuff across Army was like I was having to start again. And yeah. sometimes that's just yeah. too much. Well, yeah. I'm just sitting there going like, come on, man. Like, um, Look at my resume here, people. Yeah. Look where I've been. Look what I've done. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and that was totally disregarded. So, you yeah. know, after... A, doing a quick deployment to Solomon's and doing some time in the unit, some training, lots of stuff. I just thought, I'm sick and tired of wasting my time. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so I was kind of at that particular time where it was either get out or stay in for another 12 years as well. Yeah, it was a really defining moment of either you've done the short career that a lot of people do yeah. or mm-hmm. you go back in and do the long career that less people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was and that was also part of it too. So it wasn't just one thing. Yeah. But, yeah, so I, I got out. I mean, during this obviously this podcast stuff we're doing, I can't explain everything I've done. Right, no, 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 no. Career, it's just oh, yeah. it's impossible no. to kind of remember everything or yeah, no. every single thing. It was I've just done. again that was some of yeah. interesting questions. How would you have defined getting out then versus reflecting on it now? What feels getting different? Getting out, getting out then. I didn't get out medically. Yeah, um, it was just a choice to not sign the next contract. 
Well, it wasn't wasn't really a contract. I'd already done my four years, and okay. you know, well, it was open ended. Okay. Um, but look, I was pretty sour with the defence department. I'd, I'd had enough of it. Um, but, you know, and the toxic culture stuff hasn't just been there like in the last couple of years. It's been there for a very long time. Mm, yeah. You know, if I was never, and I'll be brutally honest with this, I was never in the in crowd. Yeah. I, was, I always did stuff myself, and I stood on my own two feet and did my own stuff, and I didn't rely on someone else's because I was mates with someone else to go and do this particular job. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that, because I didn't have the mate structure or someone to support me or sponsor mm. me, um, I was never going to. I was never going to be a. Yeah, when you're not in the in group, you don't or, move forward with the in group. Well, I was never yeah. going to be an RSM. Or I was never going to be one of those higher promotional jobs. So. Yeah. Where's the pro- career progression for me? And yeah. where's the mental stimulation and the meaning yeah. when you yeah. can't add any more value? Or am I going to do all this hard work and I'm going to see all the blokes around me that have got mates? Yeah. And well, people are going to sponsor them, mm. going to get the free ticket. Yeah. And I'm going to do all the work and some of these people are probably going to take credit for it. Mm. Yeah. Which, I, which has happened to me a couple of times. It's mm. one of the things I've, I've often wanted to say to students like, you're being judged at university on your marks. But when you get into whatever you do after uni, it will always be a combination of your competence, but probably and more importantly in almost every environment will be fit within the group. If you fit well and you're competent, the sky's the limit. Yeah, if that's you're right. competent and you don't fit the group well, you're very useful to the group, but you aren't of the group. Now, if you fit well and you're not particularly competent... They'll can, make room for you somehow. Yeah, you can and, pretty much get away with it. And then <laughs> those, people, those yeah. people that don't fit, why don't they fit? Probably because they question too much. Yeah, they normally don't fit because they're independent and they want to maintain some level of autonomy. Yeah, I like the idea of questioning too much. Yeah. I'll take that. I ask too many questions. (laughs) I'll put up too many ideas. And no wonder you were so good at training people, doing the admin and doing the risk assessments. Yeah. Because you never stopped asking questions. You were the ideal person to go farther, further, and keep modernizing the system. But the system... Isn't um, interested in that most of the time. No, I mean, even even looking back to our... uh, the way we conducted like uh, rifle ranges, mm. uh, field firing, all that type of stuff, it took it took some people over in WA, in the you know, special forces realm, to change that. Mm. So it was only like at me, that level that they could have enough of an impact yep. to change it in big arms. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. so for for John Duncan down the back to say, hey man, we can do we can do field firing better or shoot shoot a rifle in a different way, and why do we have to do the the shooting continuum? Mm. Who are you, mate? Yeah, you're not warrant officers such and such. Yeah, and yeah, there's from, a heap of warrant officers down the back at in Puckapunyal in the back of a building somewhere writing all the doctrine. Yep. and they haven't. You know, last time they were on a range was with an M16 or an SLR. Yep. and they are yeah. there for the extra years because they've got nowhere else to be, no imagination to be anywhere else, and no desire to reinvent themselves post that career. So I was kind of outgrowing yeah. all that stuff. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I just thought, look, if I'm going to stay in the army, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go big places. Yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, I just thought, stuff it. I'm going to go and just get out. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just get out. I'll just take the plunge. Um, so I had a mate of mine. Uh, he owned a painting and blasting company here in Adelaide, mm. um, and they would do a lot of um, uh, you know stuff with like big bridges or big industrial sites. Um, we ended up doing a um, uh, uh, what was the first job? It was out at the Manly Wharf in Sydney. Yeah. So they did the full reconstruction of that, but we went in there to take. Believe it or not, lead paint off steel. Fabulous, uh, <laughs> great. So, but with that comes a bit of 
extra cash. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so and you've already been on the malaria trail, so what can go wrong? <laughs> what else can they experiment with me? You know what I mean? Just don't lick the poles of paint. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, they they actually went and did a blood test before we started the project. Oh. And my lead levels were up. Yeah, because of the job you'd done. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you really probably shouldn't have been on the job from day one. Well, it wasn't out of control. Okay, levels, but it was just but, up. Okay. But like there's all the painters have been doing lead removal for quite a while. Yeah. And mine's about one or two points higher than theirs. Yeah. yeah. And um, what it's like, milli- it's like, it's, oh, it's, my, it's like some micro- crazy micrograms per, per milliliter whatever. or yeah. something. It's such a tiny amount. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, you know, people, they, they don't think that the infantry soldiers get any lead yeah. type of contamination, but we do, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, Particularly the star, it's got like a ejection opening, which is very close to your mouth. Mm. Um, and when lead is turned into a gas, mm. which it is when it when it falls, you know, part yes. of the, part of the round would yeah. do that, and that stuff that comes out of the rifle is right near your face. Mm. Um, so even just um, inhaling that, because the way you absorb uh, lead is either inhaling or ingesting. Mm. Yep. And you're loading ammunition yep. into yep. magazines. You put that on your hands and then you eat something. Yep. Yep. Um, you can't avoid it, basically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, that type of lead contamination is not the same as no. if you grabbed the paint and ate it yeah. or <laughs> you know, whatever, or you rubbed it on your lips. And it's not the same as being <laughs> in somewhere like you know the Iron Triangle no. with a massive smelter down the road when you're one mm, yeah. and you've got neurological development going yeah. on. But if you've been in the infantry for the last 12 14 yep. years, yeah. um, mm. you've, you've been exposed to a lot of it. Um, but but anyway, I mean, not in um, life-threatening levels, but no. it was just mm. funny that we, I did a blood test and I was a bit higher than the... The painters. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, uh, uh, sorry, is there... How much do you want to continue with that story? Um, I was just about to finish it. Well, that was so, sort of my thought too. Yeah. This seems a good place to kind of wrap it up. What do you reckon, John? Yep. Yep. Right. Well, that's uh, not the end of the John Duncan story. Uh we of course do return <laughs> at some stage but listeners you'll have to tune in next time uh, when, when we discuss that part of uh, John's career what we, when we find out what John does post lead paint yeah. <laughs> he does survive yeah would you know it <laughs> just don't don't lick like if you, if you ever lived in um, Broken Hill yep yeah don't don't lick the dust on the the, I think that's just a good lesson generally in dust. life. Don't lick the dust. Yeah. Like kids, the lesson for today at the end of the episode, <laughs> don't <laughs> lick the dust. John, thank you very much for talking with us today. It's all right, no worries. And Thanks, thank David. you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. <laughs>